This week, I'm joined by one of my favorite ED attendings from my site, Dr. Michael Paddock, and he's going to be answering all of the burning questions you guys have about how to manage blood glucose in the ED, focusing in on our diabetic patients. So, Mike, thanks so much for joining us, man. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Adiz, for having me. Uh, actually, really excited uh, excited to do this with you today. So yeah, thanks. and this is a big moment for the podcast because after three years, it's the first time I actually have a face-to-face interview. Most of the other interviews have been uh, remote, so this is a, a great moment for the show. So thanks again. Thanks again for being here. Happy to be here. Thanks. So Dr. Mike Paddock graduated from the Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine in 2010, and he completed his EM residency training at Cook County in Chicago in 2014. He also completed a fellowship in medical education, research, innovation, teaching, and scholarship through the University of Chicago. So he's heavily involved in and very passionate about teaching. So he's the perfect guest to have on the show. And he is now, like I said, a full-time staff physician at my site and an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota. Do you have anything else to add? No, and I think one of the things that we were discussing before the show started was, like, what's my connection to all this, right? Um, So why diabetes is such an important topic to me, uh, I have quite the personal connection. So uh, my partner, Melissa, and my son uh, both have type 1 diabetes. And so, you know, having our young adult relationship and then having a child with type 1, we... uh, you know, I've I've kind of taken great lengths to kind of learn as much as I can about this clinical topic and kind of make it my mission in the department to really make sure that the care I'm providing is evidence-based, safe, and kind of sees the people through the complex clinical problem that is diabetes. So uh, I take a lot of pride in making sure I get things right as best I can and uh, treating the human on the other side of these things. So that's my that's my major connection to all this. Yeah, I knew there was something to it. You know, when I first started working in the ED, um, I was telling Mike before we started recording the show how he was the one of the first people to teach me about IV and uh, sub-Q insulin and the kinetics and why we use certain things in the emergency department when I was a fresh uh, ED pharmacist. And I was like, why does this guy know so much about diabetes and (laughs) insulin? And why does he care so much? And so you are for sure my go-to person when I have questions about diabetes and insulins and pumps and things like that, which is what we're going to get into in this episode. All of these questions are probably things that I've asked you or other people have asked us. So I think it's going to be great for our listeners. And it's such a treat that we get to have you here because you just know so much about it and you're obviously very passionate about it and um, you have a great way of teaching and and explaining things. So I'm really excited. And with that said, we're just going to get right into it. Um, So one of the first questions that we get um, as pharmacists in the ED is just the different formulations of insulin. So what's out there? What exists? What are some common names, both brand and maybe some generics? And then most importantly, what are the pharmacokinetics associated with those different insulins and, and why do we care? Yeah, so the major categories of insulins, they're all bucketed in basically their uh, onset of action and also their duration of action. And you're going to utilize different insulins um, to uh, manage different elements of a person with diabetes day. So long-acting insulin is great, one of the categories for basal insulin, right? You need a low level of insulin present at all times to kind of knock down the the little peaks and uh, not have too many valleys, the low dips um, of our blood glucose. 
So your long-acting insulins are going to be things like insulin glargine, right? That'd be your generic or, or technically denimir, if you want to call it a long-acting. And then, you know, brand names for glargine would be things like Lantus or Bezaglar, you know, Tojillo. I can never say that one right. No, but Tojillo. Uh, Tojillo. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me. I like the Spanish tang to that, though. <laughs> uh, and so that those ones really, they... They describe those, uh, you know, the the kinetics that I want to to kind of illustrate in each of those things are really are just peak, like how fast does this insulin engage and start lowering blood glucose, and then how long is it going to be present? And so long-acting insulins, they technically, they're kind of described as being peakless. They just kind of slowly ramp up to a basal state and they're present. Um, we historically say, you know, things like glargine last for 18 to 24 hours, um, so that's their duration of action. And you're going to take it once a day. Typically, there are some treatment paradigms where people take it twice a day, depending upon how they interact or how their bodies respond to that particular that particular insulin. So those are long acting. And those are kind of like the easiest ones to understand. They get in your system. They stay there. They're there for 18 to 24 hours. You put it in, you know, and it's good to go. Now you start getting into the the on the other end of the spectrum you have your rapid acting insulins right so these are things like you know brand name like humalog or novalog um those are the two big ones so the generic would be insulin lispro for humalog and then uh insulin aspart or aspartate for novalog okay those have an onset of action anywhere between like 5 to 20 minutes somewhere in that ballpark um, they peak about an hour to two hours. I think the literature says up to three in that particular case, but for the most part, they tend to peak right around an hour is kind of how I like to think of it. And those last um, anywhere between, depending upon the brand, you know, we're usually looking three to five hours. I think of it as three to four hours. So rapid acting insulin, those are going to be used for things like um, correcting high glucoses, they're going to be used for things like, you know, going to be taken as you eat a meal um, for people with diabetes. So the concept there is you carbohydrate count, you give this insulin dose, and it's going to counteract the impact of the dietary ingestion of the carbohydrates that are in front of you. So you want an insulin that's going to act super fast, kind of get in there, do its major work over the next hour, and then get out of the way. So it's not causing low blood sugar later once those carbohydrates are out of your system. So those are those are two ends of the spectrum. Then you start getting into kind of your, what I would call short acting, right? Which is basically regular insulin. So the difference between rapid acting and regular insulin, um, these are, you know, synthetically, the rapid acting are synthetically derived from the more, you know, the more um, uh, traditional insulins. Uh, they have different, you know, side chains or whatever you know, element to them that makes them much more rapid and onset that a regular insulin does. Those onsets uh, for regular uh, insulin, if you were to use it subcutaneously, would be anywhere between 30 to 60 minutes. And there's a pretty good deal of variability, which is one of the things we can get into later. But uh, with regular insulin, um, tends to be the most cost-effective insulin out there. Um, but the the the, the, the way in which the kinetics work when it's onset, when you're absorbing it, when you want it to get on board for using it to treat a meal or something, it's not a necessarily a reliable thing when you're giving it subcutaneously. And that's why the rapid acting is rubber developed. Um, so in that situation, we can get into the IV stuff in a little bit. Um, but uh, for regular, um, that's kind of how that works, at least if it was given subcutaneously. Now, then you have this like kind of other middle tier, which is this intermediate acting, um, 
insulin. So these would be things like NPH is a great example. Some people would put denomir kind of in that intermediate acting, but let's just focus on NPH. That has an onset of action right around an hour, half hour to an hour. So a little bit longer than your rapid acting, probably a little bit more similar to your short acting regular insulins. Um, But the duration of action is going to be much longer, somewhere in that 10 to 16 hour range. Um, And peak really occurs over four to 10. So if you were to see a curve, it would kind of look like a, almost like a triangle or a pyramid, right? It's going to be kind of a slower onset of action and come down a little bit slower. Not, you know, not as, you know, slow, obviously as a long acting insulin. So again, that's NPH. So those are kind of like your major buckets, the four. There's a, there's a couple other things that get added on to this. And when you get into the rapid acting category, that second category we talked about, There are a couple other ones that have kind of been termed ultra fast acting or ultra rapid. And those would be things like FIASP or Afriza, which is the inhaled version. Um, and the concept there is, um, you know, some of the, some of the, the marketing behind it is, you know, really those can get absorbed rapidly within five to 15 minutes. So even, you know, maybe move that rapid acting down you know, five to 10 minutes. And the concept there is, you know, oh, if you forgot to bolus for a meal or you have a really spiking high, maybe you miscounted your carbohydrates for that meal, you could intervene very rapidly with this and have it kind of blunt that impact of that rapid rise on that blood glucose. And so that's what those insulins are kind of used for. And there's some investigation of using those particular ultra rapid acting in uh, insulin pump systems. Because okay. if you think about an insulin pump, which is kind of like a continuous infusion, right? Correct. Yeah. Something that's in there really fast and gets out of the way, you can control it on the on the continuous control, on the, uh, the pump settings. Uh, that would be kind of like the ideal insulin to use in that scenario. So there's a little bit of, a little bit of um, use in that in that uh, with that particular insulin as well. Sure. So that leaves me with kind of just two questions. One is where does something like a 70-30 or a 75-25, yeah. that is, I'm assuming, similar to an NPH then? Yeah. Like so an intermediate acting? I'm glad you brought up 70-30. I kind of left it out. It's kind of like <laughs> the bastard yeah. child of insulin. Oh, it's actually quite a common thing. You'll see a number of patients that come to the emergency department, it'll be on their medication you know, list. Sure. And um, it's not a, a super precise way to, to have glucose control, you'll see it more in patients, um, particularly type two diabetes, where um, there's a lot of impact going on for other lifestyle changes like diet control and some other things that are happening. And so maybe you want some mixture of long and short acting, but not have to deal with um, or not have to handle a lot of close blood glucose monitoring or frequent dosing or administration of insulin. So 70-30 is is a mixture. And depending upon the brand, that's kind of where the confusion comes in with 70-30s. So the brand Novolin is a 70-30 mixture. It has 70% intermediate, so an NPH, and then it'll have 30% short acting or rapid acting insulin. And then uh, Novolog um, we'll have a 70-30 mixture. 70% of it is long-acting, so more of like a, a glargine, and a short-acting um, on the 30% side. So if you ever see a dose of 70-30, you kind of have to think, okay, 70% of that is going to be some sort of medium to long-acting insulin. 30% is going to be rapiding, rapid. And that's how you can get into like converting, oh, if this person comes in with this particular dose, what am I going to use to treat something? Sure. Um, you can kind of back work from what their prescription is as long as that's an adequate prescription for them or that it's been working for them recently. Got it. That makes sense. And to kind of bring it back into to most of us who are assuming work in an ICU or in, or in um, ER setting, which of these formulations do we use 
the most in the ED setting, like on your average day? What are you using mostly? Yeah, it's a good question. So I would say, you know, in the emergency department, we use regular quite a bit in terms of IV administration. So uh, you're going to use it in your hyperkalemia setups, right? So um, which should be required listening, by the way, your hyperkalemia <laughs> podcast is excellent. Uh, <laughs> I forget the show number off the top of my yeah, head, but it is fantastic. Me too, but shout out to Jimmy from Farm So Hard. That was that was, that was was his episode with me. So yeah, it's a great one. Great one. It's, it's a classic. <laughs> it's a classic. Uh, should be required listening to every, everybody out there. Um, the other, uh, so the other one we're going to reach for is rapid acting. Um, and that's going to be things like your Novolog, your Humalogs, sure. and you're going to use that primarily subcutaneously. Mm-hmm. From time to time, we'll utilize long-acting insulin, but these are going to be patients that are probably going to be destined for admission or we're aggressively treating their, you know, their DKA and they're on the protocol. They've been in the department because of boarding for a number of hours and we're going to convert them over and start transitioning to a long-acting insulin. But that's a little bit more nuanced, like upstairs care that's happening in the department that probably isn't intended to. Correct. Correct. And and you know NPH is something that I've never seen ordered in the ED, but it is something that you might see in your ICUs. We do a lot of NPH, for example, every eight hours, every twelve hours, especially for patients on tube feeds. Hmm. I feel like we get a lot of really good control. If, for example, if you have a long acting on board, and then you do an NPH anywhere from like eight to fifteen units every eight hours, along with the sighting scale, um, because you can change the dose of that NPH, you know, two three times a day versus Atlantis takes a lot of time to adjust. So that is one one place in the hospital that I do see NPH is mostly in the ICUs um, on tube feeds. So, but yeah, not so often in the ED. So that's good to know. Uh, okay. So we talked a little bit about the different formulations of insulin, kind of what's out there. Knowing what we know now, say you have a hyperglycemic patient that comes into your ED, um, newly diagnosed diabetic or just a known diabetic I get this question a lot, especially by new providers, new residents, new pharmacy interns, you name it. What dose of insulin do I give them? It's a good question. It's got a loaded answer, right? Yeah, it's very nuanced, right? Yeah. I mean, if there's one thing I want everybody to take away from this is like diabetes is so nuanced, right? And it's so individualized um, down to every individual person. Um, But I think there's some good kind of some rules here that we can kind of, or some things to think about, some general concepts. So to treat hyperglycemia in the emergency department, really kind of it comes down to a couple different things. One is the, what's the primary presentation, right? So are they coming in for hyperglycemia as their primary complaint, right, through the department? Sometimes this could be someone that has presented to their clinic or an urgent care. They did some random chemistry screening and found a glucose of 350. They're like, I don't know what to do. Go to the ER, right? So that's one particular patient. The other is a known person with diabetes, uh, type one or type two that has, they just feel crappy. They're vomiting. They're having a, you know, maybe an early DKA presentation or a late DKA presentation, or maybe they have some other clinical thing that's going on, you know, viral gastroenteritis, and they've kind of precipitated some hyperglycemia. So I think, you know, separating out those patient populations for someone that's a new onset, you know, um, diabetes diagnosis. So that would be someone with a random blood glucose greater than 250, on a taken on a random testing, um, that particular person needs a lot of instruction education on like what the heck is going on and like what to kind of, you know, what their next few days and next week or two are going to look like, um, navigating our complicated healthcare system with that new diagnosis. Um, but you know, one of the key concepts to 
that particular treatment is really knowing, okay, this blood sugar, let's say they present with a blood sugar of 400, right? You feel like as a clinician, like I need to lower this because they're at risk for DKA, HHS, right? In all actuality, there's some literature that basically points to the fact that, hey, you know, glucose levels, even in that, that range, if you present to the emergency department with that blood glucose with or without intervention, you're probably going to be okay, or at least over the next seven days. Um, there's a study 2016 um, out of Hennepin, friends across the river, um, that looked at, you know, patients that presented to the emergency department with glucoses. Everybody that was included in this retrospective cohort study um, was uh, greater than 400 at any point in their emergency department stay. And out of, you know, a number of patients, it was right around, you know, 550, 600 patients, um, there was no difference in outcomes, whether or not, you know, those glucoses were addressed in the emergency department stay, or whether or not they were coming back seven days later for a repeat visit or another hospitalization for a complication like DKA or HHS. And, um, you know, they even accounted for patients that were lost to follow-up, which was right around 10% or so. It's a pretty well-designed study. So it kind of like sets the page of like, hey, this is a glucose level, right? It's like blood pressure in the emergency department, right? It's a number, sure, right? And we want to avoid complications in the acute phase and in the intermediate and long-term. But really what the goal of care, flipping your mindset when you see that value is like, what's there going to be their medium and long-term wellness and not so much worry about what's going to happen when they leave the department in an hour or two hours or tomorrow or eight hours later. Um, Cause the data would suggest like they're going to be safe. Nothing. That's going to be okay. So your answer is don't give them anything. <laughs> I mean, it's an option. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's totally an option. option. It's totally an option. I think actually where the discussion pivots to then is like, what are the things I can do that will make a meaningful impact? Right. Um, by the way, this study of it excluded people with type one diabetes, right? So there's an, a major caveat there. And the margin for error, right, uh, is much greater, right? Or, or I should say much tighter um, in people with type 1 because they have no endogenous insulin, right? So there's not a fudge factor built in. Their body's not able to make any of that. Um, but I think from the perspective of, you know, what am I going to do? New diagnosis, 400. You know, I'm going to make sure that they have, I'm going to teach them a little bit. Right. So I have to prepare some materials. I'm going to have to spend, you know, a little bit of time in the room kind of explaining what the diagnosis is. Then I have to make sure they have a glucometer, test strips, alcohol swabs. Right. Um, I'm going to make sure that they can test at the very least. And I might have to come up with some sort of intervention plan. The best systems like in, you know, any major metropolitan area that kind of run into this frequently, most of them will have some sort of discharge hyperglycemia protocol. Um, we tried one at our shop. It seems to work from time to time. It's a hard thing to, you know, you got to get your outpatient people on board with your inpatient right. or your ED people. And, you know, these tend to always present, you know, on Fridays, right, at 3 <laughs> o'clock. Course, and yeah. you're like, man, how am I going to make this work <laughs> yeah. over the weekend? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I would encourage, you know, your listeners to really think about that particular unique new diagnosis of diabetes, whether it's type 2 or type 1, um, mostly going to be type two diabetes, you know, how am I going to manage those patients that present at, you know, three, 400, 500, I have to get them to a clinic appointment in 24 to 48 hours. And if they show up with a glucose of 500, like, what are they going to do about that there? Right. They're yeah. probably going to get turned back to the ER. So yeah. thinking about the tools that that person needs to, to monitor their glucose at home or, um, do some simple interventions, that's really should be the focus of the, of the, of the visit for those particular people. Yeah. Um, 
obviously the people that are presenting in DKA or HHS, they're coming in, right? They're not going to be going home. Does not pertain to this question. Right. But for that subset of people that have a high glucose that aren't in those conditions, whether or not you're testing, you know, that's like we could, that's a whole nother podcast probably. Um, But, um, you know, the focus should be on like giving them the materials that they need to be knowledgeable and to kind of know what the next step is going to be, that transition to that new diagnosis and that new level of care. Yeah. I love the answer to that question. Because, you know, when I get asked that question, I just say like, ah, just give them eight units. <laughs> so this is like, I love that you bring in the entire experience, like the entire patient experience of, yeah, I mean, I can answer that question for a new provider, but that's not the whole point. The whole point is this whole social burden and their entire lives have just changed. And just remembering that you have to take that in consideration too. Yeah. You know? Well, and I think to answer your question question directly mm. dovetails into yeah. the other patient, which is previously established. Um, let's say they're, you know, five, 600. They don't have DKA. They're not in HHS. Um, they have some other illness going on. They're there for a broken leg, whatever it is. Um, you know, the, the dose that I like for insulin is right around that 0.5 to 1 units per kilo of rapid acting sub Q to treat a hyperglycemic episode. I'm probably going to recheck depending upon where they're at. Um, and maybe I'll check in an hour right around that peak duration, maybe an hour and a half. You know, I don't want to necessarily have a significant impact to the length of stay of that patient based on their glucose. But if I'm working on other problems or other things, I'm going to look for serial monitoring and that sort of thing to make sure um, that's the case. I'm also going to address, hey, do you need insulin? Do you need syringes? Do right. you need, what materials do you need of all of the crap, right? My my partner has this really great bag that basically says, can I swear on this podcast? You can swear. A little blur. Please do. Uh, all my diabetes shit. Like there's <laughs> literally a bag that we have that says that. And it's like, it's a lot of stuff, right? And it's sometimes hard to write those prescriptions on our end, right? Like we don't write that stuff all the time, right? Yeah. So uh, having our pharmacist be really knowledgeable about like, hey, this is how, you know, you're going to write for syringes. This is going to write for swabs. This is how you're going to write. It sounds simple. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, you know, from the, from the end of the physician, right? Like yeah. it's not always as uh, talked about like yeah. in training about those specifics. So, um, so the answer, the, the short answer, 0.5 units per kg of rapid acting sub Q insulin for, you know, I would say a glucose probably greater than, you know, I'm probably going to be looking to do something like somewhere upwards of mid three hundreds. I'll probably do something with that, um, 400s. Not to say that you have to, because we have, again, we have literature that says that that's the case. But the other big number to think about, and this often gets overlooked, is what is what can their glucometer read, right? So if you send someone home with their new glucometer and they keep checking their blood sugar and it just says high every time, that is not an informative process for them, right? How do you act on that? You're just going to give a crap ton of insulin, right? Um, But like how to be targeted and what their intervention is going to be, not helpful. So a target blood glucose that I look for prior to discharging someone from the department is something that a a, you know, a glucometer that they can have at home is going to be able to read. And that's generally depending upon the manufacturer, anywhere between, you know, like 400 to 500 okay. milligrams per deciliter okay. um, for all of our U.S. Uh, colleagues out there. Okay. okay, so to be clear, I think you meant to say 0.05 to 0.1 
you and us per kilo. Yeah, I totally meant that. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's a classic emergency just position. Like, <laughs> just move the decimal point. We all know what you're talking oh about, but if there, in case there's any students or anyone listening, uh, please don't give 0.5. It's 0.05. But otherwise, yeah, great answer. Uh, makes a lot of sense. So for an average patient, that'll be somewhere around 7 to 10 units sub-Q. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And for people that are more insulin naive, right? Like this is their first diagnosis. Like I might back off, you know, two to three units off of that just to be extra cautious and safe. Yeah. That's a fudge factor. It's not rooted in any evidence, but it's just kind of that thing that, you know, that little nuanced thing that every person with diabetes kind of understands is like, I'm going to back off kind of on those things. Sure. Sure. And then on the, so this is a brand new patient, never been on insulin before. It gets a lot easier, right? Like the the way I answer this question from from residents and, and new interns is if they are on insulin at home, and I think this is something that you and I've talked about too, just ask them what they do at home. Like if your sugar is 320, how much would you give yourself at home? And for the pharmacists listening, this is something you can find on fill histories, med lists, notes. Um, check the notes and see what their sliding scale is and then just talk to your provider and say, hey, with this blood glucose value, they give themselves X number of units. So it makes it a lot easier. You don't have to think about it or do the even better thing. Just ask your patient, you know, how much do you want? How much do you give yourself? How are you feeling? Are you going to eat? What's going on? You know, is that fair? It's absolutely fair. Yeah. Ask them, ask them. you know, for right. your for your patients that are there, particularly, you know, coming in for another condition, another clinical thing. Hey, how would you treat a glucose of 400? How much insulin would you take? I don't know how many times I've gone back into the room and just asked that question. Yeah. yeah. And as a learn, you know, learners that ask you that question, like, hey, did you just ask? Just ask them. We can totally search the notes so we can look at their prescriptions, but like, just ask them, like, what would they take? Because I almost guarantee you, they've, you know, people that are particularly engaged in their treatment plans, they've made tweaks to that. Right. Oh, sure. That prescription could be sure. nine months old. Yeah. And they've changed their insulin to carb ratio. They've done something else to tweak their regimen in that yeah. time frame for that t- particular time of the day. Yeah. And they're going to know best. Correct. So ask them first. And if they don't know, then you can step out and do your your calculations, look for the endo notes or look for the, you know, the, right. the primary care notes and, and figure it out that way. Yeah. And the other easy out for anybody out there listening is um what is your institution's hyperglycemia protocol, right? Like your hospital medicine, admission, sliding scale order set. Um, look at it and just do what the floor nurses would do with that specific blood glucose value. So that's another little trick that I've picked up over the years is just knowing our sliding scale protocol pretty well and just being able to kind of guess on what they would do upstairs. So another easy out. Okay, another question I have for you, and I know you touched on this a little bit earlier, is... If you're about to discharge one of these patients that is hyperglycemic, I know your your answer was no, but I kind of wanted a little bit more details. And do you have to correct their blood glucose before you discharge them? So the short answer is no. The long answer is it's great to get it to a value that their home glucometer can sense. And I know we touched on that already, um, but that should really kind of be your target. So like, you know, you can flat out ask patients, you know, what's the what's the top end of your glucometer, um, they'll know. And if they don't know if they need a new one, then, you know, general rule of thumb is going to be somewhere in the ballpark of, you know, anywhere between 400 to 500 milligrams per deciliter. There's some that go higher than that. And, you know, that goes, that's in the the other element or the other way in which people frequently monitor their blood glucose is going to be through like a continuous glucose monitor. And those typically are going to top out around 400. 
So just kind of knowing 400 milligrams per deciliter is going to be the ceiling on that. If they have a value of 500, they're just going to see a flat line at the top of 400 scale. They're not going to see anything higher than that. Got it. So they can't make more. Are they 500? Are they 600? Are they 700? They can't make more nuanced decisions than that. Um, And they may or may not have a home glucometer. Most people will if they're using a CGM. Um, That might give them a little bit higher value, but that may not be the case. I love that answer, you know, because a lot of I, th- I feel like people aim for a value like I want it less than 200 before they leave or or they ask me, you know, I'm going to give them 10 units. What's their glucose? Like, what can I expect their glucose to be? Am I going to get it down to 250? And a lot of times I'm like, I don't really care. You know, I'm like, it might, it might not. But I like that answer. I'm going to use that a lot. Like, just get it to less than four or 500. And the counseling, too, could be listen, like, I might just be looking for a pattern of its dropping, right? So they came in at, you know, 480. And now they're down to, you know, 350. Like, okay, that's a downward trend. Hey, when you go home tonight, um, I want you to drink lots of water, right? I want you to be mindful of the carbohydrates you're ingesting. Maybe choose, you know, a lower carbohydrate meal tonight because we want to bring this, you know, kind of touch down. Um, I want to have, have them to have access to a glucometer in case that I overshot that correction dose, right? Hey, if you feel funny, if you feel lightheaded, if you feel dizzy, this could be a sign of a low low blood sugar. I need you to check with this new glucometer that you're getting or the one that you already have and make sure you're not low and then treat a low, obviously. So warning people on discharge about, hey, we may overshoot here, right? Because everyone's different. Everyone's going to react a little bit. Your ingestion of carbs before you got here Sure. It's going to be different, sure. right? Yeah. What you eat when you leave here is going to be different. So these are the signs and symptoms to look for. Make sure you're double checking it. Or, hey, check your glucose every hour or two, you know, until you go to bed tonight and that sort of thing. So in giving people like what the next thing for them to do when they leave your department, it's yeah. really critical. Thinking ahead. Mm-hmm. I love it. And one of the last questions and maybe one of the more complicated ones is what do you do with the patient that has an insulin pump? And they come in and say, you know, that patient has DKA versus you have a trauma patient that comes in with an insulin pump. So how do you manage those two different patients? I guess the first question I have is how does somebody with a pump even go into DKA? Mm -hmm. And then what do you do with that pump? And then we can talk about that case where it's a trauma patient or somebody that comes in with a completely unrelated issue um, and they have a pump on, but they're getting admitted. What do you do with those patients? Yeah. So for so for the first patient, which is the patient that comes in with like a hyperglycemic, you know, emergency, right? DKA, HHS, something along those lines. At that point, um, you know, the reasons for which people will go into that particular clinical condition is is very very big. But the 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 root of all of it is the same: is that they did not have enough insulin right, in order to counteract the impact of whatever rise in glucose that they were experiencing for a short or a longer duration. So that could come down to pump failure, right? So did they recently change settings? Was there some sort of malfunction of the tubing or the infusion set? Or did their, you know, battery run out on their pump? Or, I mean, there's a a litany of potential causes that are pump-centric that could have precipitated that DKA. Maybe they pump was functioning when they went to sleep. Um, They went to bed early because they weren't feeling well, you know, eight o'clock the night before and they woke up at, you know, 5 a.m. and they're like, 
vomiting and that that whole overnight period was unknown to them, like that they were spiking. And so that's their presentation in the morning. So I typically am going to discontinue that pump at presentation for patients that come in a DKA. Now, it can be a little challenging because we don't know typically when they hit the door that they're in DKA, right? Like yeah. we're going to send our screening labs right, and right. then the lab's like diluting stuff and you're like, where? <laughs> why is it taking two hours to get a basic chemistry back right, right. and all these things? But, you know, so there's that time period um, that can be sometimes really challenging because you might get an acu, you might get like a quick acu check or a, or a, a capillary glucose that's like, oh, this is reading high, and I'm going to start probably intervening on things at that point. I'm probably going to say, you know what, we're going to discontinue your pump. I don't know if it's working or not. Let's just take it out of the equation, sure. right? Was work backwards. We're going to take it out of the equation, and I'm probably going to start doing some interventions like some rapid acting subcutaneous insulin as my you know DKA labs are kind of coming back for screening. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, which is your patients that are there for some other thing and they just happen to be on an insulin, you know, insulin pump, uh, the current standard of care is just let them be on their stuff and let them manage their stuff. Like, don't intervene. Like, don't do anything about it. It can be a little bit complicated. So let's say you have a trauma patient that has a low GCS, right? Someone that can't make treatment decisions for themselves. I might, you know, like be knowledgeable that they're on a pump and I might just say, you know what? Um, you know, can I have nursing check a glucose every 30 minutes or an hour, unless that they have a CGM and I might just take their, you know, come in and peek at the receiver, right. Uh, in the department and see where they're at. But the key there is to get frequent, frequent checks. I would say that's teetering on danger though, especially if there's a person that can't manage their own stuff and their pump doesn't have a, it doesn't have a safety mechanism for turning off and we can get into other pump technologies in in the future or a little bit later. Um, but uh, in that particular patient, I might say, you know what, we're going to discontinue this if their GCS is really low or, you know, they're not able to make treatment decisions and might convert them over to like a long acting and a rapid acting protocol in our department. Right. In the ED. Right. Is, so is that something, is that a decision that you have to make in conjunction with endo? Because, you know, at our site, I think endo gets an automatic consult for anybody that has a pump. Is that something that you're making that phone call in the ED or are you making these decisions before them or what's the, is it just like comfort level based kind of thing? It's probably comes down to like comfort level of the person that's taking care of. So like the provider at the time, um, for me, I'm usually looking through endo notes and just kind of seeing what settings are or, and doing some math. Um, usually a lot of times endo notes will have like a total daily insulin dose or it's very easy. Like there's a nice little shell sheet built into their, their chart and you can do that math pretty quickly. Uh Um, you know, but these people aren't typically coming in. They're coming in at a set point where they've had insulin that day, right? Like when they got it, what they got, I don't know. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So there's a little bit of like, I have to kind of like react to what's happening. Um, and so I'm probably not going to hit them with the long acting insulin at that point. I'm probably just going to kind of like do some frequent checking of their glucoses, deal with highs if I'm getting to them that are significant. Um, but again, one of the things that we really haven't touched on too much here is like the more serious and severe condition the real emergent condition here is hypoglycemic episodes, right? So I don't want to overcorrect. I don't want to over-intervene and cause a hypoglycemic event. That is where you're going to cause way more problems than having someone be hyperglycemic for a few hours while they're under your care. Understood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if it's DKA, those patients, I would assume that the process of events would be shut the pump off, start an IV insulin infusion, trauma patient, somebody comes in something unrelated, you could just turn it off and just get mm-hmm. really frequent checks mm-hmm. and just give them Humalog, mm-hmm. et cetera, every hour or two as needed. And then when they go upstairs, you're done with it. Correct. That's it. Okay, perfect. And I'm assuming they'd have some kind of endo consult and they'd manage 
all the and, magic things that the floor does. Yeah, whatever that, that, I, that I used to know. And then I haven't been up on the floor in a few years now. I forget. Uh, so you touched that a little bit. sounds like an upstairs problem. Like, yeah, yeah. We just turned their pump off. Now we don't know what to do. <laughs> well, I mean, but that's a real... So, you know, just to think about that too, like that's setting that person up. I mean, that is that is a rough thing to have to deal with on the floor. It is. Like a Especially few hours at later, midnight right? on a weekend. Yeah. You know, like, yeah so like, yeah. I mean, I am not a proponent of like super tight glycemic control. In any critical situation, right? Like lows hurt people, mm-hmm. right? We have a lot of ICU literature that says like tight insulin control, hyperglycemia, or you know, tight insulin control. Oh, glucose, yeah. or I'm sorry, it's glucose awful. control is not helpful to people, right? right? Like even it, in the ICUs, correct? Yeah, right. Yeah. So, you know, I don't need that now. Am I setting them up for success during their hospitalization? That's a whole other thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, please don't let them order the pancake stack and don't cover anything, right? Yeah, As they're yeah. waiting for their bed upstairs, like just like think about what their needs are going to be and try to make the care upstairs as uh, straightforward as possible for <laughs> sure. that, for the other members of the team right? <laughs> sure. and that patient. They're going to really appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for the shout out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you talked a little bit about these, would you call them the loop systems with yeah. the pumps? Can you talk a little bit about those? I know you have a deep interest in those. Yeah. So diabetes technology is kind of a fascinating space. And, um, you know, I have obviously a lot of personal um, kind of investment in a lot of these things. I mean, not monetary investment, like sure. I don't get any kickbacks. Yeah, right? Just time and I love, did. just time right? and love. But just like how meaningful technology is to um, the diabetes community. So again, I'm not a person with diabetes. Um, I will never claim to understand it on a level um, of a person with diabetes. But um, I think I have skin in the game, you know, with my son and, and my partner. So uh, knowing these things and knowing what technology can be used to really, one, provide optimal care as possible, and two, to reduce the burden on the person with diabetes. Those are what diabetes technology things do. So there's two major categories or two things. There's how do you deliver insulin, and then how do you measure insulin, Mm -hmm. or how do you measure glucose? Mm -hmm. And so um, the latter, you know, continuous glucose monitors, you know, name brand, Dexcom, right? Libre device, Abbott Libre devices. Those things provide frequent monitoring or frequent levels of glucose, um, that are informative to the person to make treatment decisions. They also give you a huge data set to say, Hey, let's tweak this basal insulin or let's change these pump settings sure, or like let's look at your high, insulin to come ratio low kind of thing. Super empowering, sure, right? Sure. I know how to like, I can, discover how my body works like how does it work overnight yeah like when i'm eating nothing yeah and just like you know cortisol levels all these things like how what are my blood glucose is doing how can i change my regimen to make that most optimal optimal for me so that's you know that's cgms right mm-hmm. and those are incredibly powerful so that's one part of this the other part of this is now insulin delivery so common insulin pumps you know we're in a medtronic area, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you got all the Medtronic pumps, you have the tandem pumps, uh, the T-Slim X2 is a really cool one. Um, there's the uh, tubeless, quote unquote, right? Things like uh, the Omnipod um, is an interesting insulin pump system. And the whole concept between all, you know, all of those is essentially there's going to be basal settings and there's going to be you know, other settings that correspond to a patient's, you know, insulin to carb ratio, what they're going to get for a particular meal, you know, breakfast, lunch, or dinner might be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you make some sort of entry into that device and it spits out an insulin for you over a certain duration of time. Mm-hmm. They're going to help manage your diabetes that way. Now, as the closed loop systems, 
are different from that traditional pump system in the sense that it will take that first tech, which is the CGM, it'll integrate that into the pump and it'll help make treatment decisions. So you're going to, your pump's still going to have all its setting features of knowing, you know, the insulin to carb ratio, kind of an idea of what your basal insulin should be. Sure. But it's going to recognize, hey, your blood sugar's rising. I'm going to give you a little bit of extra insulin at this time. Or your blood, your blood sugar's dropping and I'm going to back off on your insulin because this is, seems to be sure. unsafe, right? So that's what a closed loop insulin delivery system is. And the, the companies right now that have those on the market are Medtronic, mm-hmm. right? They mm-hmm. utilize their own sensor and their own pump system. And then the other uh, major player is the Tandem. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a Control IQ, which is one of their platforms that they have that essentially does the same thing, recognizes when you're climbing, it's going to be more back off when you don't need it. Um, there are the, the other system, Omnipod has a new system that just released to the market in the last year or so called the Omnipod 5. Um, and that system does the same thing. Um, but that system's a little different. The Omnipod is what I said before is like a little tubeless. It looks like a little, almost like a, like a, like white little plastic puck on the back of your arm or on your lower back. Uh-huh. And that's your insulin pump. So every three days you replace that, you fill it with insulin before you put it oh, on interesting. Uh, enough for three days or so you stick it on your skin. There's a little needle and cannula that pokes the cannula under the skin surface and it sits there and then everything's done wirelessly. Just like through your phone yeah, or so do the, you control it through your phone? Like the yeah. way you're talking about it, it sounds like it's just replacing the pancreas. Is yeah. it that advanced or so, do you still have to put in some, like, is there still some manual adjustments that you would do? Or is it literally like you go about your day and you play sports and you eat whatever and you don't care at all? The, that's like, a what's the, great question. So yeah. the, the colloquial term is like, oh, it's an artificial pancreas, right. right? Like if you think about it, oh, I'm sensing a glucose and I'm giving or right. taking away insulin right. and it's closed loop, right? Yeah, in a sense it is. However, none of these systems yet know how to deal with food entry. So if I were to like be on one of these systems and like go eat a pizza, it, the system could not counteract for that. Some of that is built into like what the safety algorithm, like what the safety protocols are in these systems are. So you're not delivering too much insulin automatically, right? Mm-hmm. And the other is is like we just don't uh, have rapid enough acting insulins really to kind of counteract with that. And there's algorithms that need to be kind of developed on the treatment side of the pump system to kind of know how to manage those things. They're in development, like yeah. bo- both commercial products and non-commercial products are are out there. Um, you know, you can find examples of these on social media, um, but they're not widely available to the masses as of yet. And so the the true artificial pancreas, right, doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Not yet. Correct. We're close. Uh, we're close. We're and in tech, the I think, gets us there. Yeah. But just like anything, like these are complex systems. Oh, yeah. And any complex system has multiple points of failure. Right? Oh, yeah. And especially so, diabetes. Like, yeah. to me, I think about diabetes. That is the one of the most complex things to manage. And the way you discover that is if you ever have a patient on a Saturday night at midnight that also doesn't speak English, and now a provider asks you as the pharmacist to explain to them their insulin and their test strips and how much they're giving themselves, you quickly learn how completely absurd you know, diabetes and just the pancreas functions are to somebody who doesn't have a medical background. I mean, even myself, you know, or even your, anybody in the medical field, it's hard for us to manage diabetes, let alone somebody who's never even, I don't even know what a pancreas does. I mean, it's so complex. There's an entire profession developed right. out of this. Right. Certi- certified diabetes educators, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, advanced yeah. diabetes and management. They need right? hours like, with new... Um, 
new diabetics to just teach them what is a pancreas? You know, how does it work? What does this number mean? So yeah, the, the concept that we can emulate that in the acute care setting is like, it can't be done. It right? can't be done. So like, it has to be distilled down to like, what are the core things of like, mm-hmm. what is going to make them the most safe in mm-hmm. this scenario? And that's where a lot of the treatment decisions that I try to make, they come in like, what's going to be the safest thing? How do for I them? set them up yeah. for the future for when an educator can actually spend the two weeks with them to describe what's happening? Yeah. 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 That's a true story that actually did happen to me before. So it was super fun. <laughs> the, the scariest part about it was when the, the patient had the, the glucose value and the insulin dose switched around because I said, okay, now, now teach me what you're going to do with this value. And he was like, oh, I'm getting myself, you know, 200 units of insulin. I was like, oh my God, no. You know, one of the key <laughs> concepts I want your listeners, you just talked about a teach back. I did. It's a great way yeah. to do bedside education, yep. right? Mm-hmm. You lay out some stuff. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm telling you. The situation is, this is how we're going to intervene. Yeah. I want you to tell it back to me. Correct. Yeah. How... <laughs> Many when knowledge gaps home. can be identified in that oh, scenario as massive. So many. Such a so powerful thing. I yeah. think nursing has known this for years, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. And uh, we're just catching on to nursing, yeah, for sure. Totally. All right. So the last question I have, that was all super informative. The last question I have, what is your biggest pet peeve when you have a new resident or somebody, when they're managing insulins, uh, what is the biggest misconception you hear or have to deal with in your practice? So I think, you know, I'm never, just to rewind that question. <laughs> Don't call anybody out or anything. No, just no, no, in no. general. <laughs> like the, eye, the healthy eye roll, eyeball roll. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, man, anytime there's a knowledge gap, and this goes back to my education experience, but just, I love it when I find an area that I can actually teach something in, right? Especially in an area of interest of mine that I know a lot about. Which so is a lot I, of things. Well, no, no, just like when, especially when it comes to diabetes, right? Like I just hear that little, little thing in my ear. I'm like, okay, now I can spend the next five minutes and tell this person probably more than they want to know, right? About diabetes or how we're going to address this problem. Give it some nuanced context, right? Ah, that's the best. That's the best. As a bedside educator, like I love that. Like I found a knowledge gap. I'm going to fill it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. So I don't ever have a lot of eyeball rolls. Now, the times that I do eyeball roll a little bit is um, a little bit of the judgment piece that comes with diabetes. Yeah. So the term noncompliance, right? That's like a third rail um, for people with diabetes. So I think as providers, we think about that term and we go, oh, there's a treatment plan and they're not sticking to that treatment plan because they don't. Like we have a handful of patients, like they just don't want to, or they, you know, there's a huge, you know, element of them not participating in the thing we've recommended to them. And they've done this to themselves, right? Like that's the, that's kind of like the underpinnings of it all. And the reality is, is if we've illustrated in this, you know, this talk, even here at this point is like, there's so many variables and so many barriers to health and care. I'm a physician who knows a lot about this stuff. I will still spend, you know, month to month, I'll spend two to three hours a month talking to my insurance company or my online pharmacy or my pharmacy down the street to get the things that I need and to try to get people to understand for my son or my my wife. That's a barrier. And I know how to navigate this shit. Correct. Right? Yeah. So for people that don't know how to navigate that, think of how many more hours of work that is or financially, Right. The cost of insulin, I mean, we don't, that's a whole nother topic, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But, you know, 
there's some percentage of patients, it's, uh, you know, depending upon the literature that you cite, it could be anywhere from like 40 to 80% of people with, with diabetes will ration their insulin because of the cost. Yeah. So I think when I hear that term, uh, you know, in the, in the one liner, this is a, you know, 38 year old, you know, male with type one diabetes, who's non-compliant, like it's cringy, it's nails on the chalkboard, it's eyeball roll. And it, I, I now know, oh, hey, I'm going to have a gap I can fill here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A knowledge gap. But one of the things I want your listeners to kind of think about is like the time could be better spent instead of that label is like, what are truly the barriers to that person? Like what social, what financial, what barriers, maybe you can address one of them. Sure. Or you can at least just understand what that barrier is and just have a little bit of empathy at sure. that moment. Um, and so I encourage, you know, when I have like an intern that'll come and present one of these patients and that term might get thrown in there and say like, okay, so why do you think they have noncompliance? You know, like, what do you think that the real issue is? Like at the core of it, what's the issue? And they might be able to identify it. I'm like, okay, so next time, like when we talk about when you have a patient, some of this, like, let's if you want to put that in the one letter, great, or you can leave it out and we can address it later in the presentation. So really identifying barriers to their to their care, man, that's super empowering and super awesome. And that's true of like any clinical condition, but oh, sure. diabetes is such a great example it of is. the multitude of layers of problems that can, or barriers that can be put in front of people. It is the hardest chronic condition that anyone will ever have to oh, absolutely. manage. Ever. And, <laughs> and the optimal care is you are now at, baseline. Yeah. Everybody without diabetes. Yeah. Right. So like it is, yeah. it is an immense problem. Correct. And so I think that element, I think is the one eyeball roll thing that I get. So you know? now I can't say non-compliant anymore, Mike. So what, <laughs> what is the term? What is the term we can use? How would, how would you, how would you present that patient in like a one liner and sign out? You know, cause you know, the For flip example, argument, the flip argument to that using yeah. that term is like, I instantly recognize the pro like, when I'm doing a one-liner or an oral presentation, man, we're trying to condense everything down into a couple minutes, right? right? So I'm trying to efficiently communicate a problem, right? Right. So I'm going to use that term. So I would, you know, I would just say like, this is a 38-year-old male that presents, you know, history of type 1 diabetes on insulin pump therapy, um, history of multiple presentations for DKA um, or frequent ED visits for hyperglycemia, right? You can include that information if that's oh, sure. helpful to that particular part of the information, whether or not they're compliant or not doesn't really, that term doesn't really matter. Sure. Maybe it's just triggering to me yeah. because I'm connected to that I mean, you can community. say like they have a hard time being compliant because of cost or, right. you know, Due social to this, situations. Right. Correct. So because yeah. of this yeah. thing, that is way more, I think it's valuable. It's valuable right? to the team. Yeah. yeah. And that's true of any social barrier, social mm -hmm. determinant of health, like trying to identify those for any of our patients. Incredible, right? Like that's the root cause. Like that's going to be the root thing that, we may not be able to address it, but if we identify it, maybe there are some resources we can share or at least have a better understanding of where that person's coming from or what they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And and just the last thing I want to say before we end the show is, you know, you talk about filling knowledge gaps and you, you filled one of mine, actually. Um, it was specifically pertaining to giving a hyperglycemic patient IV regular insulin versus a sub-Q rapid acting like a Humalog. Um, and I think this trips up a lot of even new, uh, older and newer providers where they want to treat that glucose level and they'll, they'll order, for example, 10 units of IV, IV regular insulin. 
Because now in my practice, anytime I see a 10 units of IV regular insulin, if we're not shifting or if we're not treating DKA, I call the provider and I get it changed to sub-Q Humalog um, and I get some eye rolls, I think. Um, am I doing the right thing? Do do you also, you know, just just reserve your IV regular for those two scenarios or are you more open to giving IV regular insulin just to treat uh, hyperglycemia? So I, you know, my practice in emergency medicine is like this adaptive expertise, right? It's I use all the tools at my disposal. So can you use IV regular insulin to treat hyperglycemia? Sure, you can. Um, is it reliable in its uptake kinetics? Absolutely. It doesn't last very long right? So if I want to have a meaningful impact on someone's blood sugar, that's going to be more lasting, um, then, you know, a subcutaneous route is really going to be the ideal way to go for just treating a hyperglycemic uh, episode with a rapid acting insulin. More more reliable and predictable uptake kinetics. It's 99% of the time what they're going to be on, right? If they're already established on an insulin protocol. Um, And so it's just a better tool. So we should probably be just more accurate and using the better tool for the thing that it's designed to do, which is treating hyperglycemic episodes, you know, shifting people. Um, I think I heard you say 10 units, but if I'm not mistaken, I think the ceiling should be five units for hyperkalemia. Technically, technically it isn't at our site yet, but <laughs> I know be. other places around the country are, are ceiling it at five. Yeah, yeah they are. Uh, uh-huh. Based on uh, your uh-huh. wonderful yeah. uh, previous podcast. Yeah. But, Thanks, um, yeah, well, and I will say that it, that that was practice changing for me, yeah. uh, and made a lot of made a big impact on me. But I think for treating that hyperkalemia and those um, DKA HHS protocols with uh, IV regular, like absolutely standard, reliable uptake kinetics, reliable elimination or duration of action, I should say, and um, that is going to be the mainstay of therapy for those con- those clinical conditions. So, yeah, rap, you know, just treating hyperglycemia, a better tool, a safer tool, mm-hmm. right? is the use of the insulins that were developed for that problem, right? Which is those rapid-acting sub-Q insulins. And on the, on the flip side, why give regular sub-Q, right? The, the kinetics don't really make sense in an ED setting for me. Yeah, they, they're not as predictable. They're longer-acting. They're going to take longer to, to peak, work. Right, so like, right. let's say you are, like someone comes in at 600 and you're like, God, I got to get this thing like below where their meter's going to read it because I listen to that podcast, right? <laughs> um, yeah, like you're just going to have to wait like you could have to wait two to three times longer for that to happen. Right. 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 Because right. I've heard providers say, like, oh, I want to give like sub Q regular and just check a sugar in 30 minutes to an hour. And I'm like, yeah, you can do that with a humalog, but not really a regular sub Q. So kind of keeping those forms, uh, the formulations of insulin and your routes in mind with yeah. their different kinetics is, is key. Know your tools, mm-hmm. use the right tool for the job. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm hmm. Well, Mike, you are the right tool for this job. Thank you so much <laughs> for coming tool. <laughs> for coming on the show. Super informative. We're really lucky to have you, man. And I'm sure Thanks, your your son with diabetes and your and your partner as well and your other son, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Very lucky to have you. You're a great guy. Thanks. Uh, we learned a lot. Would love to have you back at some point. I know you're a really busy man. But thank you for all of the no- the knowledge bombs. If I get any questions from any listeners, I'll make sure to send the questions your way and we can discuss things uh, offline if needed. So thank you guys for tuning in and we'll talk to you next week.